we have been in a series traveling through uh, the life of the great man of God, Joseph. Um, I got, I was planning on wrapping that up today, just a single sermon, then we'd get into some more Christmas-themed stuff, but I realized as I got to the end of Genesis, there's a lot more there. And so what I decided to do was to push that off and after, after the first of the year and to focus our attention on some Christmas-themed uh, stuff. And so we're actually going to be looking at the virgin birth uh, today, and so I was just curious to see what Americans thought about the virgin birth, and so there's a uh, research poll, uh, the Pew Research Poll, and they do um, religious, go out and ask religious questions of Americans and try to get a sense of where people are at. And so this is just the latest data that they have, it goes from 2014 and also 2017, and they just went out and asked people, do you believe in the virgin birth? And here's what people said. In 2014, they said 73% of Americans uh, believed in the virgin birth and that 40% of professing Christians believed in the virgin birth as well. Uh, numbers go down just slightly in 2017 with 66% of Americans saying they believed in the virgin birth and 85% of professing Christians. Now that's a little bit unique to me uh, because the virgin birth is a supernatural account here, and those same people would say that they didn't believe in God. The, the 73% who said they did believe in a virgin birth, many of them would say they didn't believe in God, or they didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, or any of those sorts of things. But somehow they, those numbers are really high for amongst Americans to say that they believe in this particular text. And so it began me asking, well, why, why do people think that? Why would they ascend to that teaching of the church, but then not to some of the other things? And uh, so that's kind of where I want to go today, is to talk about the subject of the virgin birth. What is the church's position on that? Is this an essential doctrine of the church? And so we'll take a look at it together. Our text comes from Matthew chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 18 through 25. This is a text where it uh, tells the account of Jesus' coming into the world. Um, just prior to that, uh, Joseph is uh, visited by an angel, and the angel tells him, hey, don't worry if you're not take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so that's this text today. Um, let's stand and read together from God's Word, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through verse 25. Here we go. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so let's walk into this passage together and get our heads wrapped around what's the virgin birth, what are we talking about here? Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they came, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now I want to stop right there for a moment because in, the ancient, Israel, in ancient Israel, in the ancient Near East, that part of the world, their engagement period was very different than our modern engagement period. They called it a period of betrothal. This was a legal 
uh, there was legal teeth to this. Uh, they were, had made a commitment to one another that I am indeed going to marry you. This was not so easy if they wanted to break off this engagement as, um, as Mary taking off the ring that Joseph had given her and throwing it at him and saying, I'm done with this. Or Joseph saying, you know what? I've changed my mind. I don't want to get married to you. Their betrothal period was uh, very different. It had some legal standing there. You say, well, what was the purpose of the betrothal period? If it had all this legal standing, why wouldn't they just go ahead and set up shop and get married? Why wouldn't they go ahead and do that? Well, their betrothal period had a purpose, and the purpose of it was it was designed for the husband to be able to go and build a house or to secure some sort of housing for he and his uh, new bride. He might add a room to his father's house. He might buy a new farm and start from scratch. But this betrothal period gave him a chance to get housing ready, knowing in the meanwhile, I have this gal who I'm committed to, who is committed to me. And as soon as I finish this housing, then the two of us are going to get married and we'll move in together. So the text says, before they came together, that is before they moved in together, Mary turned up pregnant. She, found, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So Mary comes to Joseph, knock on the door one day, Joseph, I have some news. I'm pregnant. Well, Joseph knew how this thing worked. And he knew that this baby was not his. And so according to the laws of Moses, Joseph had a choice. He could either have her strangled or he could have her stoned. Uh, but the problem for Joseph is that he lives in Judea. He lives in a land that is ruled by the Romans. And so if anybody was going to put anybody to death, the Romans were going to be the ones to do it. And so he opts for door number three. He opts to, because they're in a legal contractual agreement here, he opts for door number three, which is to write her a letter of divorce. Verse 19 says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man, referring to the fact that he did not have relations with her before the marriage, he was a just man, he was an honorable man, and being un unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph makes the decision that rather than to drag this thing out in the public and let everybody know what's going on here, know all the ins and outs of our situation here, he says, rather than do that, rather than uh, make a spectacle out of Mary, Joseph is going to show her mercy, he's going to write her a letter of divorce, and he's going to annul this thing. He's going to end this thing, it says, quietly. Look at verse 20. It says, But as Joseph considered these things, that is, as he thought through the legal actions that he needed to take and the ramifications of these legal actions, and how best to handle it, it says, verse 20, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to tell him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, why do you suppose, at least I asked the question, maybe you're not asking the question, but I asked the question, why would Joseph, or why would God send an angel to Joseph? I mean, why an angel couldn't marry? I mean, she showed up and said, hey, I've uh, got news. Um, she, and, and I'm sure she told him um, in the midst of, try, you know, that I've got this news that, hey, look, this angel visited me, told me that I'm going to have a, a baby, this baby's going to be born of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, I imagine Joseph in that instance, when she showed up at his door, did what you would imagine he would do, and that is she... Uh, he doubted her. He doubted if her story was true. I mean, he's looking at a young lady here, 14, 15 years old, something like that. She's pregnant. Uh, she's engaged to be married to him. Um, she's perhaps, he might, you might consider that situation sort of desperate, willing to make up some sort of story. And so Joseph uh, is visited by this angel to help convince Joseph that, hey, look, Mary is telling you the truth that this really is a baby from the Holy Spirit, that she has supernaturally conceived a baby in her womb that is of supernatural origin. And so the angel shows up to Joseph in a dream. Joseph is convinced that this really is what's happened here. And so verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did exactly as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife. So the house was ready and they got married. Verse 25, says, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 
So that's this portion of the Christmas story. We know other portions of it. It's like the wise men. We know about the shepherds. Uh, we know about all those sorts of things. But this is this portion of the Christmas story. Um, and it is a crucial bit of information. It's a bit of information that the two of the gospel writers felt that we needed to know. Both Matthew and Luke record this account of how Mary was a virgin and how she, was con she came to be with child and that this child was from the Holy Spirit. Um, and so they even draw this teaching out so much to say that even after Joseph and Mary were married, uh, verse 25, that Joseph knew her not. Uh, that is, that they did not consummate the marriage until after baby Jesus was born into the world. She remained a virgin all the way and through her entire uh, period of gestation. Now, I, again, I like to ask questions. And so the question I asked this week was, why? Seems a perfectly logical question, right? Why the virgin birth? Why would God um, have Jesus come into the world this way? Why would he put the story into the story of Jesus' life, a story that for some people they might struggle with uh, because it's a supernatural story? Uh, maybe it's because, and, and other people have said, well, I, I think the reason why God, or why at least the gospel writers put this in here, is because Mary really was pregnant, and she was pregnant with Joseph's baby. And so this was just a way for the gospel writers to sanitize the whole story and make it seem as though, you know, Mary and Joseph were on the up and up and we didn't want to have Jesus come into the world with a little bit of a taint, if you, would, if you might, um, like, like the story kind of suggests. Um, and so again, why the virgin birth? Why does God put this story in here? Well, I got three reasons for you. Three reasons why God insists on Jesus being born this way. Reason number one for the virgin birth, is that the Old Testament scriptures predict that the Messiah would be born this way, that the messianic figure that the Jewish people have been looking for all along would come into the world this way. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, the prophet Isaiah talking about the coming messianic figure says these words, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So this was known amongst the Jewish scholars of Jesus' day that this messianic figure that they were anticipating, that this would be one of the criteria, that he would come into the world via a virgin birth, via a supernatural uh, means, uh, that he would be born from a virgin. This was one of the criteria, and it's for this reason that Matthew, who is writing to a Jewish audience, not only includes this fact in his Christmas narrative, but also boldly points it out by quoting Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, where he writes, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew adds, which means God with us. So the first reason for the virgin birth is that God predicted this through his prophet Isaiah, some 700, get this, 750 years, please say that with me, 750 years before Jesus would ever come onto the earth. It was one of the signs that the Jewish people could be looking for that would confirm that they really did have the Messiah on their hands. Now, you may be wondering to yourself, well, Gordon, is it possible that the first and second and third century writers, knowing these legends and these stories around the life of Jesus, could have gone back to the Old Testament scriptures and tweaked them, changed them, altered them to fit the life and the narrative and the death and the resurrection story of Jesus Christ. Is that not possible? Well, I suppose anything is possible. However, it would have been very difficult for them to pull that off. 
You have Jewish scholars and scribes and rabbis all around them who know the book of Isaiah and all the other scriptures. There's 30-some prophecies that point toward the life of Christ and say these are the things we can anticipate about the Messiah. I've been very difficult for them to go back and, and change Old Testament scriptures um, and change the story right under the noses of all these Jewish rabbis and scribes. You think somebody along the way would have said, uh, hold on here, I don't remember that being in the text that I grew up reading. However, we do know and are confirmed through archaeological evidence that the first and second and third century Christians did not do this. Here's why. I've got a picture for you here. Um, what you're looking at is a picture of the Isaiah scroll. You can see it. It wraps all around this uh, container. I don't know what you want to call that. But anyhow, you'll see a bigger picture of it here in a second. Uh, but this is the Isaiah scroll. It was found in the Qumran caves in 1947 along the Dead Sea. It was one of hundreds of scrolls. I think they found around 950 such scrolls that date between 300 B.C. and 150 B.C. Um, this is held in the shrine of the book. It's a, mu it's a museum. Um, and, there, and you can see it unrolled. There's a black and white photo of it. You can see unrolled back in 1947 uh, when they were first found it and were studying it. The Isaiah scroll was intact. It was complete. All 66 books of Isaiah, every word from the book of Isaiah. In fact, I believe I'm saying this to you right, that there were two whole such scrolls. In fact, again, there were hundreds of them. And again, all of these were stored inside of clay pots. Some of the pots that you saw were pots that they actually were discovered in, covering every Old Testament book of the Bible except, and you can, don't quote me on this, but go back and check me, Nehemiah and Ruth. Those were the only two Old Testament books of the Bible that were not found. Um, when the scrolls were unrolled, scholars dated the scrolls, again, between 300 and 150 B.C., which means the scroll that we just saw, the Isaiah scroll, which includes Isaiah's predictions about the Messiah and being born of a virgin, were written before Jesus ever stepped foot on the earth, which means that Isaiah really did predict that the Messiah would come into the world through this virgin means. The scroll of Isaiah and others found with it are considered among the most important archaeological finds ever in the history of the ancient Near East. Um, they contain a bunch of biblical books of the Bible as well as ancient non-biblical Jewish writings. So why the virgin birth? Number one, because the Old Testament scripture predicted that Jesus the Messiah would be born this way. Number two, Second reason why God chose the virgin birth is because it established God as Jesus' father, not Joseph. It established God as Jesus' father, not Joseph. Flip over with me to Luke chapter 1 and verse 32. This is when Mary is being visited by an angel. The angel tells her that she is going to conceive of a baby, of a, of a baby and that this baby is going to be uh, by supernatural means through the Holy Spirit. It says, verse 32, Jesus will be great and he will be called the Son of of Joseph. That's not what it says, is it? It says, actually, it says that he will be called the son. Everybody's going to know this, not just in your generation, but also for generations to come. He'll be known as the son of Mary. That's not what it says, is it? The angel tells Mary, your baby that you will conceive in your womb will be the son of the most high. That is, this will be the son of God. 
The virgin birth points to the fact that Jesus is of divine origin, that he is not like the rest of us, that he's not the product of natural processes. The baby is God in the flesh. This is not the Dalai Lama that's coming into the world. This is not some enlightened soul like the Buddha or like Mahatma Gandhi. This is God in the flesh. Emmanuel will have divine blood running through his veins. And the virgin birth helps us see that. Paul describes it this way, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Let me say that for you again. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was both fully God and fully man. He is the God-man, He is, and the virgin birth helps us see that. It puts Jesus' divine origin on display. Paul talks about this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 47. He says the second man, Jesus, is from heaven. That's where this man came from. John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God, verse 14, and in the person of Jesus the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Friends, this was no ordinary individual that Mary gave birth to. This was God in the flesh, walking, dwelling among us. That's who Jesus was, and the virgin birth puts that front and center for us to see. You with me? Okay. Reason number three, third reason for the virgin birth is that the, I was really excited about this, by the way, if you can't tell. Number three, the virgin birth, for, for third reason for the virgin birth is that the virgin birth enabled Jesus to be born free of the curse of sin. It enabled Jesus to be born free of the curse. He was born out from under the curse that the rest of humanity is, is born with. Flip over me to Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Here comes a very confusing passage of Scripture. We'll try to unpack it here real quickly. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Paul writes, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and eternal life for all men. What in the world is Paul talking about? Well, he's comparing the effects of Adam's sin and Adam's life on the human race. He, and he's comparing that with the effects of Jesus' sinless life and his death on the cross for the human race. He says, as Adam's one trespass, that is, as Adam's one sin, led to condemnation. Condemnation means that you have been found guilty in the sight of God and that you are sentenced to hell. That's what condemnation is. It means that you are guilty and you're heading to hell. That as Adam's sin led to condemnation for all men... Um, so, too, the effect of Jesus' life was, end of verse 18, that his death on the cross, his one act of righteousness, leads to justification and eternal life for all men. Now, I know that we have, I know that we have, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I know that we have some very good Presbyterians in here, right? We have some good Presbyterians um, in our midst, because I've preached some sermons before, and they come up to me and they said, you know, that's an interesting thing. Here's something else for you to think about. So we've got some good Presbyterians in the midst of us, people that have been raised on good Calvinist uh, theology and Calvinist doctrine. And if you have been raised that way, then you know that every person born into the world, please don't miss this, this is good Calvinist teaching here, that every person born into the world is born condemned in sin. That means from the moment of conception that that person is condemned. Remember what condemned means? It means that you're guilty and you're heading for hell. It means that every person come born, into, born into this world is born under the curse. It means that they're, uh, from the moment of conception that they are born into the world and they're condemned. That's Calvinism 101. That, that condemnation for all men is the result of Adam's sin. And you and I don't have a choice in the matter. We are born that way, condemned from the very start. 
What that means is, if Jesus was born from the seed of a man, then through natural processes, like everybody else was, then that means Jesus was born under the curse, that is, according to Calvin, which means Jesus would have been born with sin. Let me say that again. That means that Jesus, if he was born under the curse, if he was born through natural processes like everybody else, then he inherited what everybody else has inherited. He was born with sin. He was born condemned. Because, and so the virgin birth, if you've got a good Calvinist background, would be extremely important for you because it would absolve Jesus of being born a sinner. It would allow him to be born by other means such that he is not born with sin. Because if he's born a sinner, if he's born into the world like the rest of us, then he was not perfect, and that means his death on the cross was meaningless. Enter John Wesley. Right, we've got to have a little debate. Okay. So enter John Wesley. Wesley argued, no, you know what? Adam's sin resulted in sinful nature. That's what Adam's sin resulted in. It resulted in all of us being born into the world with this with this bent towards sin, with an instinct toward wanting to disobey God and toward violating his laws uh, rather than an instinct toward obeying God and pursuing his will, but that we have this sinful nature, this bent towards sin. Wesley um, argued that. And he went on to reason that because we are born with a sinful nature, that that sinful nature would one day lead all of us universally to commit a sin, which would then result in our condemnation what he called the age of accountability. This is, <clears throat> he would say basically that we get to an age where we know better and we do it anyway, and at that point, we're condemned. That's kind of the way Wesley saw this. Wesley said that action, <clears throat> said that our sinful nature was, would result in our committing a sin, which would result in our being condemned. And so he said that that action of us committing a sin was as predictable, was as inevitable, was as universal as sinful nature itself, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Wesley, that's the way he saw this. And so that's a debate between those two guys, right? It's still going on, I suppose. But that's a debate between those guys. If you want to dig into that theology a little bit more, we did a series here for a long time last year in Romans. And you can go to Romans chapter 8 and listen to the sermon where I preached on that. And we really dig into Romans chapter 5 and verse 18 and get into that debate that happens between the two of them. Uh, but my point is this. Um, Jesus Christ, being born of a virgin, did not have our sinful nature. He did not have our sinful nature, which, if you're a Wesleyan, would result in, if he had a sinful nature, would result in him being condemned. If you're a Calvinist, then he was born con condemned already. Um, but Jesus Christ came into the world by different means. He came into the world perfect. He came into the world without a sinful nature. Again, all that makes complete sense to me. But again, go listen to the sermon if you're not uh, fully up to speed. But again, my point is Jesus being born of a virgin meant that Jesus did not have a sinful nature. He did not have a bent toward disobedience. Whereas you and me, for example, my mom did not have to teach me how to lie. That just, that just came naturally, right? She didn't have to teach me to cheat. She didn't have to teach me to steal. I mean, I did all those things without her help uh, because I have a sinful nature. Uh, could Jesus have sinned? Absolutely Jesus could have sinned. 
He had, the capacity to sin was always in him, just like it was for Adam, who was in the garden, who was also not born under the curse. But unlike Adam, when Jesus, who was given many opportunities throughout the 33 years of his life to sin, Jesus did not sin. He stuck with his instincts. He obeyed his parents when they asked him something. He shared during playtime. He never fired off a blankety-blank, and he never even had an evil thought. That's why he was his mom's favorite child, right? <laughs> Jesus was pure in every sense of the word. He was holy. He was perfect. And he managed to live his entire life that way without committing a single sin outwardly or even in his mind. And this was made possible in part because of the virgin birth. All right, so three reasons why the virgin birth. Number one, they're predicted in Scripture. And Old Testament scripture. Number two, because it established God as Jesus' father, not Joseph, that he was of divine origin. And number three, third reason for the virgin birth is because so that Jesus would be born not under the curse with no sinful nature. All right, well, that's our treatment of this topic today. I may have raised more questions than I have answered today. But uh, anyhow, that's, and for that reason, we are not just going to spend one week talking about the virgin birth. We're not going to spend two. We're actually going to spend three weeks talking about this. I can see the excitement written all over your faces. So that'll be the next couple of weeks around here. But for now, for today, it's time for us to stop there and ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I appreciate the theology lesson this morning. I get that the virgin birth is important, but how does this help me at work? How does this help me in my parenting? Because the children I have in my house, I know they were born under the curse, right? And so, I mean, how, what difference does any of this make to me? Well, that's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Um, we were talking this past week in our small group, in our men's small group on Wednesday. We have a small group that meets on Wednesday evenings, does Bible study. And we were talking in there about miracles, um, and about how miracles can actually, you know, miracles were, when they happened, they were, in part, they were designed to convince people, right? Convince doubting people who were listening to the teachings of Jesus, who were listening to the teachings of Peter, who were listening to the teachings of Paul, that these miracles would take place and it would help bring people into belief. Um, and so that was kind of the original design of miracles. But in the modern era, uh, as were generations and generations removed from when those miracles took place, um, those miracles can actually serve as a tripping point for people uh, to come to faith in Christ. You say, well, why is that? Well, we live in an age of naturalism where people put their faith in what they can see and they put their faith in what they can touch and in what science can verifiably prove for them. We're in an age of doubting Thomases where people say, unless I can see with my own eyes and touch with my own hands the scars, I just can't believe and so the modern mind finds itself treating accounts such as the virgin birth, accounts that are supernatural in nature, with a certain amount of suspicion. Some would even say that such claims are unintelligent. And so someone who is considering the faith is basically saying, I want to believe in Jesus, but do I have to believe that he walked on water? I want to believe in Jesus, but do I have to believe that he fed 5,000 people with just two loaves and five fish? I want to believe in Jesus, but do I have to believe in that virgin birth account? Now, let's consider this from the flip side, because it's not just non-believers who have these questions. Rather, it's students who have made a decision to follow Jesus, but they're not so sure about the miracle accounts that we read in the Scripture. 
It's college students in our churches. It's people of all ages in our churches who are asking, can I be a Christian and not believe in the virgin birth? Is this an essential doctrine of the church? Well, first of all, let me just say that questioning our faith is not sin. Questioning our faith is not sin. Asking questions of the Bible is a good thing. Nobody ever lost their salvation because they asked Jesus a question. It's when Jesus answers the question and the truth becomes known to us that we then have a choice to make. Asking questions does not bump you out of your spot in heaven. Now, in response to that question, do I have to believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian? Some Christian teachers, pastors, prominent theologians have said no. This is not one of the essential doctrines of the church. No, you don't have to believe that Jesus walked on water. No, you don't have to believe that he fed 5,000 people from two, fi- two loaves and five fish. No, you don't have to believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian. That's what they said. That's what's being taught. Are they right? Well, first of all, I think their motives are honorable. I think that what they're trying to do, they're trying to remove barriers to faith from people who have been raised in, trained in, a very naturalist perspective of the world, a worldview, and they're trying to remove these barriers of faith for them so that they can step into uh, Christianity, so they can step into faith in Christ. And so my opinion of that them is that they're not teaching what they're teaching out of a hatred for God. I think that their intentions are good, but good intentions, right thinking does not make. My little Yoda moment for the day, right? (laughs) Plenty of people, friends, have been misled on behalf of good intentions. So besides their good intentions, are they right? Well, I'll give you two things to consider in arriving at your own answer. Two problems with this approach. One of the problems is, if I start picking and choosing from the Bible what I want to believe, where do I stop? Do I say yes to the miracles of the New Testament, but no to the miracles of the Old Testament? Do I say yes to the resurrection? Because that's really important. If you want to get there, it's kind of supernatural too, isn't it? Do I say yes to the resurrection, but no to the teachings about angels and heaven and demons and hell? I mean, where does our unbelief stop? You see, what does this book here represent? It says of itself, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, I'll have this for you on a slide, just hear it. All Scripture, all, that's the word, is God breathed. That means this is what God thinks. The Bible is God's thought, God's truth in written form. That's what this represents. And so do we believe what God thinks? Do we? Do we believe what God thinks? Do we agree with God that he has interacted throughout human history in miraculous ways, in ways that defy the natural laws of the universe even? The second problem I see with those who want to dismiss things like the virgin birth and the miracles of Jesus, etc., is that it strips God of his omnipotence. It strips God of his omnipotence. When someone asks me, why do you believe in the creation account? Well, first of all, Jesus believed in the creation account, so for me... That's where it stops and starts. But besides that, I usually ask the person, could God have created the world in six days, rested on the seventh? Is that the God you serve? Is he omnipotent? 
You see, just because God doesn't fit our predetermined notions about how the universe works and he doesn't fit our predetermined commitment to naturalism, should we apply those perspectives to God as well? Should God have the same limitations that we have when it comes to the laws of the universe? If so, he's no longer God. And so did he write this book? I believe he did. Is he an omnipotent God? I believe he is. And that means that predicting the future for him 750 years before it will happen is no problem at all. And it also means that conceiving a child through supernatural means is wholly within his capability. And also sending his one and only son into this earth in such a unique way that he would not be born under the curse, something not just necessary theologically, but also possible, is also impossible in the laws of the universe as we look at it, that that is wholly within his ability. It's not too difficult for him. And so the answer to the question, is the virgin birth an essential part of the Christian doctrine of Christian belief? Well, it depends on what kind of God you serve. Do you serve the God of what's possible? Do you serve the God of what's probable? Do you serve the God of what's likely? Or do you serve the God also of the impossible? As the angel declared to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. So that's the problems I see with denying the virgin birth. If we want to sanitize the scriptures of supernatural accounts because they offend us or embarrass us, then we must also sanitize the God of those scriptures. Let me say that for you again. If we want to sanitize the scriptures of supernatural accounts because they offend us or embarrass us, then we must also sanitize the God of those scriptures. So for me, I see the stakes being pretty high. I want to close out with two statements. The first comes from Dr. John MacArthur in response to, is the virgin birth part of an essential doctrine when it comes to the Christian faith? And here's what Dr. John MacArthur writes. He said, actually it was in a sermon. He said, and I quote, Jesus' virgin birth, his substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection, and his second coming are a package of deity. You cannot isolate any one of those and accept only the one and leave the rest, or vice versa. The second statement that I want to share with you is an ancient statement. It goes back to the 5th century. It, uh, people were asking these questions, questions like we've asked today. What do I have to believe in order to call myself a Christian? What are the essential doctrines of the church? And after months and months of presentations and scholarly reports and debate and much prayer, this is what this group of men came up with, and we know it as the Apostles' Creed. And I'll close with this. Here's what they wrote. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you for setting before us today what we believe. We may live in an age of doubting Thomases, 
Some of that's even crept into our own worldview and how we see you, how we see and read through this book, the accounts of this book. Lord, may we today, with humble hearts, ascend to what you think. See the world the way you see the world. Worship you because you're greater than the laws of this universe. You are God Almighty. Thank you, Jesus, for your death on the cross, for shedding your blood, for your broken body. We come now to be reminded of that great sacrifice that you made. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you have done. May we, in these quiet moments, worship you as we remember your suffering and your sacrifice. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.